on today's episode. Now that we have the internet and you can just go to Wikipedia, yep. that that by authority, it mm. says, oh, you went to Wikipedia. Mm. Who cares? <laughs> you can find out something on a really superficial, seemingly deep level instantly. Yeah. So right now I'm finding the things that really have authority, where you really get authority is a different kind of emotional authority, where you're able to kind of state something, an emotional truth that people are aware of, but nobody has ever stated it overtly. Nobody's ever found a way of putting it forward. And so that when you do so, you are providing this enormous relief for all of these readers. Interesting. They're saying, oh, you read my mind. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Eric Fight Club. It's probably one of the most iconic pop culture references maybe on the planet. And what's amazing about it is that were it not for some lucky things, some happy accidents, and quite honestly, a community, it may not have happened. In this episode, we're going to dive into a conversation with one of my writing heroes and probably one of the people who's created one of the more iconic works of all time, Chuck Palnick. Chuck is the author of Fight Club, amongst other things. And in this conversation, we go deep into really the psyche of the writer, what it's like, what it takes, how to do things that in many senses are challenging and are hard on it. I, I found that I took a lot from this conversation, specifically thinking about the process of being a writer. And, and I think what I, I really loved about it more than anything is that Chuck really tells all of us as authors and particularly as modern authors to embrace that inner weirdo, find other people like you and really never to write alone. Um, it really does sort of push you to think deeper about it, to understand that no writing journey is unique and we get a little weird on this conversation, so enjoy it, have fun. Uh, Chuck Palnick, everyone, on today's Modern Author. I started out wanting to be a fake Stephen King. So mm -hmm. it was about reading a bunch of popular fiction, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out how Clan of the Cave Bears worked, even though I didn't care for it. Uh, it was a model for successful fiction. Mm -hmm. So reading a lot of successful fiction at the time and then trying to replicate it. Uh, and doing so really badly and doing so in isolation and in realizing that I was going to waste my youth in this kind of pointless isolation and joining uh, writing workshops gave me the socialization I wanted and it gave me some guidance for the first time mm -hmm. because I didn't study writing in college. I studied journalism mm -hmm. and no creative writing whatsoever. So at least once a week, I got a party. I got workshop <laughs> and workshop was ultimately a party. Yeah. And I got feedback on my work and and every workshop there was a senior writer, someone who was published, mm -hmm. who could give me some some good advice and eventually hook me up with an agent. Hmm. But it felt like it was taking years and years, but in retrospect, I started writing when I was 28 and I I wrote Fight Club when I was 33, 34. So it was really only about five or six years of that really slogging away. Does the, do, you, do you still feel like you're slogging or do you feel like now is the process for you has changed over that early writer or now is the, like what has changed as a writer? Oh, in terms of the field, everything has changed. <laughs> it is, uh, 
insanely different how it was. Uh, friends that I, I studied with years ago, every once in a while, they'll bring me a story that I, I brought to workshop in 1990 or 1991. And at the time, Writer's Digest was telling us that when you write a short story and you submit it anywhere uh, in the header, you put your name, you put the copyright, and you put all of your tax information. You put your social security number and your address because that's what the magazine would need eventually to pay you. So we were all sending out everything that is now so closely held. It was insane. I was making submissions, hundreds of submissions to magazines, everything in Writer's Digest and putting my social security number on everything. <laughs> and now that's the smallest aspect of the industry that's yeah. changed. It used to be that the first thing you did was you wanted to get into paper magazines. Mm -hmm. And if you had an editor that liked you at a publishing house, he or she would cobble together a bunch of editors who would like your stuff in magazines. Mm -hmm. And they would send you all these introductions to, to Esquire, to GQ, to Playboy, to everybody who did fiction, Mademoiselle. And you would start to court these editors and you would start to send them small pieces and you would start to look for what they were looking for. And so that was such a, a wonderful way to get into the market, to, to build a readership. But now there's just really almost nowhere to send to. And so for this group of authors, I think one of the things that was interesting, obviously you talk about Fight Club becoming this global phenomenon, this cultural, cultural massive behemoth, but it wasn't, it didn't start out that way. <laughs> you could talk a little bit about the origins of, of that book and how it took a little while to get momentum to become what it was. What was the, the origins of, of the, the story and, and how it grew? And the, the story was just something I wrote in a single afternoon at work. I wanted to write a short story that used a nonfiction device that would allow me to jump around temporally. Mm -hmm. that I could create a scene in one paragraph and then I could use this device to jump to a different that might have been speculative or might have been expository or it might have been in the past or the future. But I wanted a, de a device that would allow me to jump around and signal to the reader that I was jumping around. I'm mm -hmm. about to leave this mm -hmm. and start the next thing. And you could compare it to the, uh, the newsreel reporters in Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm that every time we come back to the newsreel reporters, they, speaking to their editor, always set up where they're about to go next. Mm -hmm. I'm going to Atlantic City. I'm going to talk to the former Mrs. Kane, Susan Alexander. She runs a nightclub. And so they're expositorily telling the audience where we're about to jump to. And then we jump there and we get Susan Alexander Kane's story. Mm -hmm. And for a short story, I thought, I'll just create seven or eight rules, mm -hmm. just seven or eight rules. And then every time I cut back to the rules, it will signal the reader that I'm cutting to something else. Mm -hmm. Because um, in, in a lot of ways, when I write, especially short fiction or really physical punchy scenes, I model it after writing lyrics. Hmm. And lyrics have all these different devices for signal yeah. transition, whether it's the bridge, mm -hmm. whether it's the chorus, mm -hmm. And I wanted to create a similar devices so that I could jump temporally within fiction without having to write in those very wordy transitions. Mm -hmm. Many days and nights went by before she'd heard from Mr. What's his name? Nevertheless, 
she persevered. Just the, the, the wordiness of that always right. bored me. Right. I wanted to be able to cut fiction the way that people cut film. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote seven, eight rules. I just arbitrarily made it about a place where you could consensually fight. Mm-hmm. It made such a tight little short story. And I think people were more in love with the structure of the story hmm. than, and I think after the fact, they embraced the, the violence of the story. But I don't think they recognized it, but I think that, that they really liked the fact that the story read like a song, hmm. like they were hearing a song or a ballad. And that was the initial stickiness of it. And I had a whole sort of speculative collection of short stories because I was writing at the time during a big renaissance of short stories. We had everything by Joy Williams. Mm -hmm. We had everything by Amy Hempel. We had Mark Richard's Ice at the Bottom of the World. We had Dennis Johnson's Jesus's Son. We had so many collections of short stories. Tom Jones's Pugilist at Rest that were all so fantastic. And I wanted to write a fantastic collection of short stories. Mm. And then I started to notice that they all centered around the same themes and it would take very little to cobble these collections together. And then to look for where I would have to write bridging chapters to connect them. And that's ultimately what became Fight Club. If I can expound on some, on an idea I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah. I've been asking people when they, especially when they see a movie, because most people are aware that their movies more than their books. Do you remember the entire movie linearly from beginning to end? What do you remember about the movie? And everyone says, no, I have favorite scenes. And when I go back to the movie, I will fast forward through all the parts I hate. Mm -hmm. They're actually... Within the movies I love, there are parts that I hate, yeah. that just I cannot stand. Hmm. But I will go back and I will watch this scene and this scene, and that's enough to make it my favorite movie. And I'm trying to get away from writing as linearly as I have been lately. Interesting. I always thought the, the point to writing was to write full time so that you could write a very linear, fast-paced thing. Mm-hmm. But now I'm finding that the things that I really love are books like the Joy Luck Club, mm-hmm. where it's basically a whole bunch of beautiful short stories Vignettes stuck together yeah. with a very tentative sort of line. Your mother gave up these children, and at the end, you're going to meet these children. Right, and right. everything everything in between is just these glorious short stories. Hmm. And that's it's like a- you're writing like, yeah, you're writing like TikTok a book for TikTok, like this sort of, but it's interesting thing like this. And I would tell you like your point about it. I love, I've, I grew up in the sort of the nineties and, and I go back and watch like a lot of those movies on YouTube and they have the best clips of it. And you can watch the whole movie in like 10 minutes. And it's a fun little way to do it. And I've noticed I have little kids, they do the same thing. These like sort of chip and they, the brain fills in the gaps from it for them to get those moments. I think it's cool. And beginning with the Fight Club short story, I really wanted to write a much more condensed version of that without all the filler material. Hmm. And then the book itself became a very condensed version of a whole bunch of short stories Hmm. in the same way that I really treasure books in which I remember very specific stories. Uh, Joy Luck Club always jumps out. But most of my favorite books are either collections of short stories Mm. or they are longer novels in which there are very 
distinct scenes that you remember as a story in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're writing, when you're working full time and right. trying to write, you need some sense of satisfaction and completion on a right. regular basis. Right. And if you can write a short story that also functions as a chapter, mm-hmm. you have you don't have to carry that algebraic equation in your head all the time, which is so exhausting. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that you could sell those to magazines. And when eventually you brought the manuscript to a publisher, you could say, uh-huh. and six chapters have been published in big magazines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That's actually, so that's interesting. That's one of the things that we try to do in this community is we tell people to write in these chunks, like scenes and stories is the raw materials and then build it together into it. And, and oftentimes I think it's interesting hearing you say that, that our brains don't want to go linearly. We want to go to what we're most excited about. And oftentimes that like trusting of, if you don't want to write this thing after six weeks of having on your list there probably means something that you don't might not want to have it or include it, which is an interesting framework around it. And also the little chunks allow you to experiment stylistically. Interesting. You don't have to sustain a stylistic voice experiment that might not work. Mm-hmm. You can make it work in six or eight pages. Mm-hmm. And then you'll know whether it's going to work over 300 pages. Right, right. There's a tragic story along these lines. There was the, the famous Mark Rich short story collection, Ice at the Bottom of the World. And there was one short story called Fish Boy. And Fish Boy was written very intentionally with all of these soft S's, V's, F sounds. So it would always sound like slippery, watery sounds, hmm. always like steam escaping, hissing sounds. And it was a, a, an amazing short story because it was so poetic and so phonetic. And so Mark Richard decided he was going to expand it and make a Fish Boy novel. And the publishing world went crazy. There's going to be a Fishboy novel. This is going to be the greatest novel of all time. This is going to be so amazing. But then when Mark wrote it out as two, 300 pages, it became so tedious. (laughs) That device just killed people. Hmm. And the novel just disappeared. Yeah. But if you write your chapters as a short story, you can experiment with voice and style mm-hmm. and intentional errors that are true to character. And you're not so wedded to them that you can't give them up. It's interesting. So I was, you know, as I was preparing for this, I was reading a little bit about, you, you, made it, you wrote a quote that I'm going to read. I thought was interesting. You said, I write to research what interests me. And, and you talked about that a little bit of like characters and things like that. What is that process for you of developing, writing through your research process? How, how does that play out for you when you're doing it? That's changed a lot too. Really? It used to be that you could establish authority by knowing something really unique and interesting and knowing it really deeply and being able to articulate it and teach it to someone. Hmm. And and that would buy you a ton of authority. And now that we have the (laughs) internet and you can just go to Wikipedia, that that buys authority. It Hmm. says, oh, you went to Wikipedia. Hmm. Who cares? You can find out something on a really superficial, seemingly deep level instantly. Yeah. So right now I'm finding the things that really have authority, where you really get authority is a different kind of emotional authority, where you're able to kind of state something, an emotional truth that people are aware of, 
but nobody has ever stated it overtly. Nobody's ever found a way of putting it forward. And so that when you do so, you are providing this enormous relief for all of these readers. Interesting. They're saying, oh, you read my mind. Oh, yes, I've yes. always thought that. And then they will trust you. And that's the new Wikipedia. It's like hmm. this emotional Wikipedia. Hmm. And that comes from having to be with people and listen to them mm-hmm. at parties or bars or workshops where people tell their secrets right. and where people recognize themselves in each other's secrets. Hmm. Because then you can see when someone tells an anecdote, you can see that look of relief and amazement on everyone else's face as they yeah. think, I thought it was just yeah. me. And then they have a version of it. I don't want to go in too long, but I've got a good anecdote that illustrates yeah. that. Earlier this year, when my workshop was still meeting in person, mm-hmm. we were talking about a magazine store, a used magazine store that was closing down. And someone in the workshop said, I wonder if people won't be able to sell their old Playboys anymore. I wonder if we're going to see more of the big box of porn in the woods happen. <laughs> And somebody said, what is that? And he said, everyone has a story about being a child Mm -hmm. and finding a big box of porn in a natural setting. Mm -hmm. And in the workshop, there were 20, 30 people ranging in age from 18 to 70. And everyone leaned forward with such amazement because they had all had that experience and no one had ever talked about it. <laughs> and it was porn found in the woods, porn found in the desert, porn golf found course. in a tr- golf course. Yep. yep. Was it in a box or a bag or what? This is a backpack, actually. So it was a, a backpack. backpack. Yes. And and I will tell you that for a couple of weeks, I was the coolest kid in my entire junior high. You are lucky because for a lot of people, it just scars them. They bring it home to their parents thinking they found something really special. Mm-hmm. parents go crazy and shame them mm-hmm. and they carry that shame for the rest of their lives interesting interesting and so when you identify that unexpressed but universal human experience and you depict it mm. you give people this license to recognize themselves that was always the special the, the meaning of you are not a special snowflake it wasn't about fragility it was about you are not as unique. You have more in common with people. More connected. Exactly. Interesting. That we've ignored this connectedness hmm. uh, because we're told we're so special and unique that no one is alike. And once you embrace that likeness, that that commonality, it's much more powerful mm-hmm. than thinking that you're just this completely special thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my workshop for a long time, we were going to write a collection and we were going to call it Children of the Porn. <laughs> and no publisher would touch it. So. I Listen, I, I've got a contribution for you whenever you're ready, Chuck. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in on that. That's uh, that's amazing. You've had this, you've been writing for a long time. And you've, you're such a, you, you are very so giving to the, the writing community a little bit. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting is you've talked a little bit about how you need to get confidence to get your work out there and you need to be willing to share. A lot of people struggle with this idea of this, no one's going to read it, no one's going to like it, no one's going to care. How do you, you yourself now that you've done this for a while, but also you advise other people to move beyond that. No one's going to like this thing, everyone's going to hate it. That's why I hate Zoom. (laughs) When you read your work in workshop, 
you get the most valuable kind of feedback. And that is the unintellectualized emotional reaction. Hmm. When you hear people laugh or you hear them gasp, when you hear them groan, when you have led them to the reveal and they get it before the narrator gets it, and you've gotten them two or three steps ahead of the narrator, hmm. and you can hear them just squirming and groaning with dread, hoping it's not going to be what they know it is. That's the feedback that is so fantastic. Hmm. And later on, when you're going around the group and people are saying, oh, I really liked how you depicted the dog, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, once it becomes intellectualized and it feels right. obligatory and it just turns into theoretical language, that's bullshitty. It's the emotional uh, side that you, you know, the stuff you can feel and smell in the room a little bit like that tactile feedback. Exactly. You can tell whether or not people are engaged with it. Right. Mm-hmm. by the quality of the silence. And you can also work out the timing so much better because you find out where the laughs are and where you need to give an extra beat to allow for the laugh. Because if you step on that laugh, you will never get another laugh again because people will be too afraid to laugh. Mm. And so reading it to an audience, even a small audience, is the most important thing. So, you know, Dave Chappelle was talking about the Chappelle show and he said something very similar. He's like, the time where I would write the best was when I, I would, there, he was, he was, there's one person who would be like the key grip or someone like a, a no name person in production. And he's, I would watch that person and I would listen to them like, and how they did it and watch that one. That idea of if they're confident enough to laugh when all the bosses around stuff like that, that you've hit it. And that idea of like, he spotted the right person. It was an interesting identifying person behind it. It's interesting. A lot of times when I do anything with radio or podcasts where there's a a technician behind a glass window Mm -hmm. and they're they're cutaway soundproof, I know it's working when through the corner of my eye, I see the technician laughing his head off behind the glass. (laughs) I think, okay, I'm really hitting it. This is working. That's awesome. That's awesome. So for as a, as this group of authors here a little bit, I think one of the things that, that we got several questions from you or for, for you about the way that you have today started to, to think of being more raw, more real, more authentic. Your writing style is one where you pull no punches. How did you develop that? Was it something that began that way? It's continued over time? Or what is that way that you've, I'd say you write very courageously was what someone wrote here. Is that something that's just natural or that you've learned over time? Yeah, I'm sorry about the the hesitation. It comes from so many different directions. And one is the fact that so much of my stuff is based on the truth. Hmm. And people had to be either very brave or very drunk to tell me their story. (laughs) And beyond that, it snowballs. Because then when I read a story in public like Guts, Mm -hmm. people assume, (coughs) sorry, People assume that since it's first person, it's somehow related to me. Mm-hmm. And they see me as a thing sacrificing all dignity. Mm-hmm. You have to really shed all human dignity to read that story to an audience. Yeah, yeah. And this is why I feel a little, uh, I feel a great deal of sympathy for female writers mm-hmm. because they're not granted that same opportunity com- to completely shed their dignity. Mm-hmm in a public reading Mm -hmm. in the way that a man could just completely eviscerate himself and become a thing of absolutely no self-respect. 
But I don't perceive that female writers are ever allowed that same kind of complete sacrifice of dignity. Hmm. Uh, but when you do it, it gives people the opportunity and the permission to come forward and tell their most intimate stories. Hmm. Because in a way, you have proved your lack of attachment to dignity, right. and they can risk looking undignified to tell their own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, every time you tell, and then their story becomes part of your story, right? and it becomes you know, this accumulated courageous thing, this mm -hmm. group courageous thing mm -hmm. that's en enabled and empowered constantly by the telling of it. Mm -hmm. So now people must assume some ways that when they meet you, they must think he must be Brad Pitt. That's probably what the, that. <laughs> yeah, that's always the kind of disappointing thing. And why I, I tend to avoid meeting writers that, whose work I really like mm -hmm. is because they are never going to be their characters. Interesting. Yeah. When I was a, a student journalist, I was given the chance to interview Armistead Maupin, who wrote the Tales of the City books. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I loved those books. Those are America's Charles Dickens books. Mm -hmm. And when I read, when I met Armistead Maupin, oh, I'm going to tell a terrible story. Okay. <laughs> a terrible 23-year-old Chuck story. I love it. I had to go out to dinner to get this interview. And it was with Maupin and two friends of his. Hmm. And I had a tape recorder. I was 23 years old, college kid, and I left the tape recorder running on the table and went to use the bathroom, hoping that they would say something in my absence. And when I came back from the bathroom, the tape recorder was turned off. And later when I rewound it, I played that section. And as soon as I left the table, one of Maupin's friends says, so are you gonna fuck this kid? And Armistead Moffin says, I'm sure as hell going to try. <laughs> I love that tape. That is one of my most treasured things. And no, it was not. No, it was just an interview. Nothing got fucked. But that's one reason why I try not to meet authors. Is it, when you meet them, it means the death of their characters. Hmm. Hmm. And it means you're never going to meet Tyler Durden. Mm -hmm. And this is all you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And that is such a shock. I remember how disappointing mm -hmm. in meeting Armistead Maupin, whose work I like, I right. love. I'm never going to meet uh, Marianne Singleton. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to meet Michael. It's just too heartbreaking. I, I just don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Was for, for you when you, when it, when your work became a movie and it somewhat gets out of your hands a little bit, did you feel that you had to let go? Did it change the way you saw the characters? What was that process like when the creative control gets out of your hands a little bit? <sighs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Hmm. It really is. It doesn't. Yeah. Because it would not be a book if I hadn't abandoned it for the next thing. Interesting. And yeah. so part of the creative process is always to fall in love with the next thing hmm. before you send the current thing off. Because even before it's a movie, it's, it's the publisher is going to give it a cover that you hate. <laughs> right. And the publisher is going to insist that the title is wrong. Yeah. And it needs to have a catchier, cuter title. Mm -hmm. And it needs to have all of this 
sort of crap done to it that you really hate. Hmm. And so by the time it comes back to you as a book, you already hate it a little bit. (laughs) And then you've got a tour with it. And one thing that's always saved me is years ago, David Sedaris told me, when you go on tour, never read from the current thing. Always read from the next thing. Interesting. Again, it's your chance to road test this, Mm -hmm. to see if the next idea keeps people spellbound, if they engage with it, if they laugh at it, if they're shocked by it. And it beats the hell out of reading this thing that you've already grown to hate. Yeah. So by the time it becomes a movie, it's even beyond the hate stage. It's this thing that you barely remember. It's like your ex from a long time ago. (laughs) So there's not a lot of attachment there. It's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about it. I have to, so we've had some interesting people like Tiffany Haddish has come, um, a couple of comedians have come. You approach this a lot like hearing comedians talk about their work, this idea of the word getting out there. Is it, it sounds like in another life you could have been a comedian. Do you think of that way? Do you like look up to comedians? Do you like the, that art form at all? Because it reminds me a little bit of the way you think about the sharing words. <sighs> when I started writing, I really loved oral storytelling, but the only place where that still existed in the culture was in stand-up comedy. Right. And the problem with that is that it always had to be funny. Mm -hmm. And one of the most formative things I ever saw was at the dawn of Whoopi Goldberg, before we even knew who Whoopi Goldberg was, Mm -hmm. she did some awards show that I saw on cable television. And... It was a stand-up routine where she presented herself as the only black surfer chick in this Southern California beach town. Hmm. And it was all very funny. And it was about how she really wanted to nail this blonde, blue-eyed surfer guy. And she worked so hard and, and she finally had sex with him. And then she got pregnant. And she takes that story to the point where she is in a filthy, sandy, toilet overflowing public bathroom on the beach and she's giving herself a coat hanger abortion. And it's not funny anymore. Yeah. And that whole audience was taken in a matter of minutes from this incredibly funny, ludicrous thing to this scene of horror and degradation. And then at the end, she attempts to morph back into this black surfer chick. Hmm. And at that point, it's so tragic that people are weeping in the audience. And she has taken us from laughter to horror to complete heartbreak. Hmm. And I thought, that is what I want to do in a story. Get them laughing. And Tom always said, my, 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 my best teacher, make them laugh as hard as you can get them laughing. And then as quickly as possible, break their heart. Interesting. And then end it right there. Hmm. Bust their heart as badly as you can. And then bring down the curtain. And so much of it goes back to that Whoopi Goldberg routine about being the black surfer chick Hmm. and that hideous twist, that turn. It was a masterpiece. Yeah, it's amazing. So Lizzie, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. We we definitely want to do something fun. We always do something fun where we get to have everyone come on and take a group photo with you and maybe give some words of wisdom to this group of authors. And and, uh, we're also going to do something fun where all the authors that have inspired here can send you some of their work that that you've helped inspire along the way too. But to memorialize this moment, we'd love to maybe get a group photo so everyone can turn their cameras on here. And we let you, as our illustrious teacher instructor, what 
kind of do you want us to do to memorialize it? Do you want us to do something with our hands? Do you want us to do something with our, what's the move here that we do? We had a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, we had someone who is a meditation author and have us do the own hands. We had a, a hostage negotiator have us do a phone call. So what is the author extraordinaire of tragedy and comedy blended together want us to do to memorialize this little moment together? This is terrible. Uh, <laughs> in grade school, Larry Rickards had this face he could do. I'm not sure if I can even remember it. Oh, that one right there. It's like this sort of that, like the... No, no, it's, we're gonna do? it's like you hook your eyes and your mouth. <laughs> this is what we're all going to do together? All right. Well, I like it here. Let's get everyone to do it here. The uh, What are we called here? The John... What's the... Fi- who is he again? What's his name? His name was Larry Rickards. Larry Rickards. This is going to be the Larry Rickards move here. This is quite the this is quite the moment here for us here. I'm going to take a couple photos of our Larry Rickards faces here, which I love it. All right, ready to do them, everyone. Larry Rickards faces. Here we go. I'll take a few photos. I'll take a few photos. I'm going to scroll to the next page here, so we all get it. It's your Larry Rickards photo. This is an amazing one. This might be one of my favorite ones, Chuck. We've ever done here. I'm a big fan. I knew you would come to the party for us here. You've got to cross your <laughs> eyes, too. Cross your eyes. Cross your eyes when you do it here. Is it too thing. late? There we go. So, Chuck, any last words of wisdom here for this group? We've got authors at various stages. Some are finishing manuscripts. Some are in the process. All of them will be working out in 2021. Any kind of like words of wisdom for folks who are out there creating and putting good in the world here? One real pitfall is I think it's always a mistake if you write something with the intention of fixing the world. Hmm that the idea is not so much to to fix the world as it is to model a new possibility. Hmm. And if it's something that appeals to you and you find that it appeals to a lot of other people, then it can more effectively become a solution than if it's just presented as a solution. So it's about finding joy instead of repairing something. Hmm. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, take the picture of the world and do it in that way. Thank you again so much for joining us here. We really do appreciate it. And and again, I think for all the good work that you've done, and I think you've you've been so gracious. Again, I, as I was preparing for this interview, I think you you do share so much with writers and encourage the art of it. It's not a it's a, oftentimes be a lonely process, but seeing good folks who are putting good in the world is is certainly great. What's the next thing that you're uh, most excited to? If you look at emotions out there, what's the next emotion that you're the, the next book you're writing on that you're falling in love with now is going to cover? I'm all, I'm always fascinated by the commodification of human intimate experience, and that's why I fell in love with writing about uh, sex toys because I, I couldn't believe just how much of our intimate lives were becoming automated and consumer products. Porn has replaced intimacy. And so I'm just constantly in love with how people are buying their entire lives instead of creating them anymore. And so trying to create comedies or point this out. uh, And so my new book is basically about people buying and selling children instead of having them. Hmm. So interesting. But that's two years away. (laughs) <laughs> you should, there, there, was a, there was an article that came out about the, the, the fastest growing social network this year is called OnlyFans, if you've probably seen it. And Cardi B makes $8 million a month by, and what they talk about it is it really is like people searching for loneliness and like finding ways to be intimate with people and especially in today's world. So I think you're, to your point about it, like lots of head nods when you talk about that. What does she do for $8 million a month? This is, isn't this supposed to be like a PG-13 play? I don't know. I've not ever been on it. So I don't know if I want to... <laughs> I can't even speculate. I, 
my Comic-Con fans, my comics fans, uh, not fans, friends, the people I worked with, the artists, the writers, they say that without Comic-Cons this year, that kind of level of Comic-Con celebrities mm-hmm. are now selling access through the internet. So if you pay $25, you can have coffee with this B-movie actor. Or mm-hmm. if you pay $300, you can talk for 10 minutes with this B-movie actress who's been in all these slasher films. So this kind of internet access for a kind of date is the new way of commodifying your celebrity. And, and, and that's what OnlyFans, again, I was just, I was reading an article about it because it was like fascinating to see, but what they talked about is that one of the powerful things is that it's like intimacy is so hard to have. And so we don't have intimacy with people we know because Zoom and input is weird in that way, but having it with one degree separated, this sort of ability to have intimate relationships where you can be your authentic self over the internet through these platforms has exploded. And it, is, it's a fa- it was fascinating to learn about. I, like you, I like just went down the rabbit hole and suddenly here I am learning about this entirely new world. But I think it's interesting to your point about like intimacy and the COVID era has evolved so mm. dramatically. Yeah, the COVID seems like the ultimate manifestation of this lack of intimacy. Mm-hmm.